This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Persevere. I would tell them to persevere. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law, the courts, the rule of law, the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of those things for Slate.com. And we have had quite a few days. Where to begin? Where to begin? Uh, Truly vicious confirmation hearings for Ketanji Brown-Jackson wrapped up on Thursday afternoon. The Supreme Court handed down a major elections case as those hearings were rolling on. Justice Clarence Thomas was in hospital all week with an undisclosed infection that the court provided us no information, really. No information after Sunday. And then some blockbuster end-of-week reporting from the Washington Post about a tranche of text messages sent from Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, to Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff, urging him to use all of his power and authority to set aside the results of the 2020 election in texts that included words like Kraken and Guantanamo Bay. Cool, cool, cool. Later on in the show, we are going to talk to Stanford Law School's Nate Persilli about the Jackson hearings, how misinformation can spread, and about that Wisconsin election decision. Slate Plus members are going to get to listen in to our bonus Slate Plus conversation with Mark Joseph Stern about the hearing, the complete lack of judicial ethics governing the justices on the highest court of the land, and that redistricting decision which managed to shock even the unshockable Mark Joseph Stern. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can find out more about all the bonus content you could be accessing and the ad-free shows you could be enjoying by going to slate.com slash amicus plus. And not for nothing, our wonderful Slate Plus members support all the work that we do here at the magazine on the show, and we are ever so grateful for them for that. Slate.com slash amicus plus for details. But first, rather than opening this particular show in shock and awe, we thought we would open it with gratitude and grace, which is exactly what Katanji Brown-Jackson showed in the face of, I think, bullying and insults and smears. And in order to do that, we asked Angela Onwachi-Willig, she's Dean and Ryan Roth Gallo and Ernest J. Gallo, professor of law at Boston University School of Law, a friend of this show and a really 
clarion voice for me personally to help us mark what is, in fact, a historic moment. Angela is a renowned legal scholar. She's an expert in critical race theory and employment discrimination, family law. She's an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Law Institute, American Bar Foundation, and the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers. So, Angela, first and foremost, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you. And for reasons that are going to be obvious in a second, when my blood pressure starts to go up, I really did not want to start this podcast with Josh Hawley said, what? Because it just distracts from what Judge Jackson is, what she does, what she's going to become. And so I think I wanted to give you a moment to open with this. How did it feel? You were in the Senate this week. You were on Capitol Hill on Wednesday for these hearings, for this momentous event, 115 justices later, the first black woman poised to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. It feels wonderful. She is just so exceptionally qualified. She's an amazing human being and will be a really, I think, impactful jurist for decades to come. I was so proud of the way she answered questions, pure grace under fire. I was so proud of the way that she handled so many of the senators who were continuing to ask her the same question over and over again, just with slightly different words. It was just a moment of pure pride. And even just, you know, waiting in line to get into the hearing, meeting other Black women who were also waiting to see that moment, who were excited about that moment. It was just a moment of joy, an absolute moment of joy. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you particularly is that you have this deep background in employment law. And what I have been thinking all week, and I guess I've been saying this for years, is that this is just the worst freaking job interview process in the world, right? Like, you couldn't escape the sense that for some of these senators, this hearing was getting in the way of their campaign commercial that they were making, like that they had to, like, take time out from doing their, like, ad to actually do a hearing. It's insulting, it's abusive, it's got no bearing on the job she's going to do or the job she's done before. It's a totally different creature. And I was just curious for your thoughts. Again, I realize this is horning it into your employment lane where this has nothing to do in some sense with employment, but your thoughts about how much this horrible process, which has, you know, we can carbon date it to Clarence Thomas, we can carbon date it to Bork, we can go back to, you know, Justice Brandeis, whose confirmation hearings were full of anti-Semitism and vitriol. But how much does this process distort two things? One, what the American public thinks the court actually is and does, because we're seeing the interview, we don't see them on the job, right? The, the cameras do not show them doing their job. It distorts the job itself and the work of the court, it also, I think, creates this lasting impression of who this person is. Absolutely. It is the 
worst employment interview ever, right? Not only is it the worst interview because they're asking questions that don't even relate to the job and they're distorting, right, the image of what Supreme Court justices do, but it's they're, they're able to ask you questions that they wouldn't normally be able to ask you in an interview. You know, Senator Graham asked her about her religion and her religious practices. What's her background? I mean, there are all kinds of questions that come out in the process that you couldn't ask someone in an actual real life interview without being sued for discrimination. I think one of the things that we also see, you see, if you compare, of course, the hearings involving Justice Kavanaugh and the hearing involving Judge Jackson, right, you see really a double standard. There's no way that Judge Jackson could have acted the way in terms of anger, in terms of the sense of entitlement, all those issues that Justice Kavanaugh did when he was testifying before the senators and still be confirmed on the bench, right? She had to be pure grace under fire. She had to be calm. She had to be collected. She had to make sure she answered those questions. She couldn't yell and scream back at them, right? No woman would have been able to do that and also get confirmed. So I think it was also good, though, for for the American public to see the differences in terms of what she could do and what another justice could do and so get confirmed on the bench. I agree. In some ways, there is a very much a lasting impression, right? They're gonna, there's going to be this lasting cloud over her head. Is she somebody who really does support uh, uh, pedophiles or goes easy on, on pedophiles? And they clearly try to paint that picture when she's absolutely in the mainstream. She very clearly explained why the guidelines were outdated and why most judges didn't apply them based upon those outdated notions before people were using computers. She did a very good job of explaining all those things, but they've certainly left that cloud over her head. But what I would say is that, you know, the eyes don't fool you. And people saw her be gracious. People saw her be brilliant. People saw her be pure class. And so I think that is also a lasting impression. I watched that and I thought she has exactly the right judicial temperament. She's brilliant. She's showing that over and over again. There were so many moments where I thought, and I'm so glad where I could see my voice, my experience. And I think that for so many of us, it was an affirmation that somebody is going to be bringing our realities and our experiences to the bench as well. So that leads me to this question I have about the very end of Wednesday night as as things were it felt to me, I, I mean, I, I almost had this sort of, I felt like I was reading The Crucible. Like there was this burn the witch quality that was escalating, right? Lindsey Graham went out of his mind screaming at Dick Durbin, then Ted Cruz saying, if Lindsey gets extra time, I can scream louder. And then by the time it got to Josh Hawley, he was, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen someone screaming at a witness that her job was to recant one sentence. Like, she had to apologize for a sentence that she had handed down years before. And there was this quality of really insanity that I'm sure you felt much more than I did. You were in the room. And you can speak to that or we can just leave that there because maybe it doesn't warrant answering, Angela. But then Cory Booker gets up and gives this extraordinary, just extraordinary speech that feels like the only black man on the committee bearing witness to what what is happening and and naming it. So you got five more folk to go through. (laughs) Five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm going to tell you, 
it's going to be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not going to stop. They're going to accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister. Don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. I think what I want to ask is how complicated that is that this man who, you know, we've listened now, bless their hearts, you know, we've heard Amy Klobuchar, we've heard Chris Coons, we've heard Sheldon Winehouse over and over again saying, you're so brave, you're so amazing, your family's really beautiful, your parents must be proud, which in my view isn't enough. It's not enough. And that what Cory Booker brought was maybe the beginning of what is adequate. You know, I wrote a rather grumpy article saying that I didn't think that the Democrats showed up for her the way he showed up for her. And I guess my question is maybe he was the only one who could show up for her or that the transactional nature of we've got to get her confirmed so we're all going to just keep saying she's brave and not fight for her. But what does it signal to you in this appalling moment where the person who has to say the right thing is the only other black man sitting <laughs> opposite her? I think, you know, it says why it's so important to have voices of color also on the Senate. And I think I was so grateful both for Senator Booker's comment and Senator Padilla's comments. And I think they could relate to what she was experiencing um, and had been experiencing for hours and hours on end. And their comments, I think not only did Judge Jackson need to hear them at the time, but I think we all needed to hear them because in so many ways, that hearing, I think for so many black women felt also like a questioning of us, a beating up of us. It felt personal too. Here's an exceptionally qualified, it, this is a no brainer <laughs> in terms of confirmation on the Supreme Court. And yet she is just being attacked and abused, all while they're saying that they're not attacking and abusing her at the same time. And Cory Booker's words were just a godsend. He said, I see, I see my relatives. And he was expressing the, the, the importance of the moment. And I also love that he was giving her a break. He spoke for 10 minutes, pumping her up, and he's giving her a break. You know, after hours and hours of getting beaten up, she needed that moment. And I loved the Senator Padilla moment, too, where he's talking and he asked her about what she would say to people in her position. I will tell them what uh, an anonymous person said to me once. I was walking through Harvard Yard my freshman year. As I mentioned, I went to uh, public school and I didn't know anything about Harvard until... Um, my debate coach took me there to enter a speech competition, and I thought, this is a great university. It was basically one of the only ones I'd seen, and I said, maybe I'll apply when I'm a senior. But I get there, and whoa, <laughs> so different. I'm from Miami, Florida. Boston is very cold. Um, it was... Um, it was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, <laughs> um, who knew all about 
<laughs> knew all about Harvard and, and that was not not me. And I think the first semester I was really homesick. I was really questioning, um, do I belong here? Can I can I make it in this environment? And I was walking through the yard in the evening. And a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk. And she looked at me, and I guess she knew how I was feeling. And she leaned over as we crossed and said, persevere. I would tell them to persevere. Not only was she speaking to other people who were watching what she was having to go through, um, but she I also felt like she was speaking to herself when she said it. It was a great reminder to herself. For me, it was a moment. It was like, this is somebody who's had my experience. We've all had that experience before, that sense of doubt, that sense of lostness, and being seen by somebody who says, I see you, hang on, hang in there, persevere is an experience that I think is a classic African-American experience, a classic experience for so many people of color. So it had so many meanings. It was just a beautiful moment. And and it was also, for me, a clear example of why having her voice on the bench is going to be so important, because that is an experience that, that none of her other colleagues, except for Justice Sotomayor, could really relate to. There is this other interesting conversation going on about what it means that it was Senator Booker. And then later, you're right, Senator Padilla, who made her cry and how fraught that is. I mean, clearly, as you said, he was giving her space. He was letting her breathe. And after having this stony face three days in, you know, the face of a mugging, to be able to just be in her feelings was so profound. But it's really, really complicated, both as a woman and as a woman of color, to cry at your confirmation hearings. I thought it was a beautiful moment, I think, for maybe some people who were watching and had not quite humanized her yet. It was a humanizing moment for her. I think all of our hearts went out to her in that moment, and I was so glad that she felt seen and supported. I think it also told you about the burden that she was carrying as, you know, usually it's Black people in, in high-level positions or in positions that are have vis- visibility I mean, we know we aren't acting as individuals. We know that our actions will be used to judge all Black people. And I think she was definitely carrying that burden. She said repeatedly, she talked about, number one, the shoulders upon which she was standing and how blessed she was to be there. But the burden that she was carrying for all of us to endure that questioning for, you know, nearly 20 hours. And I think it was, a again, it was a, it was a moment to breathe. It was a moment in which she was able to finally feel seen and feel like somebody else said, I understand what you're going through, and you only have this much longer to make it. I thought it was really interesting also that Senator Booker said, nobody else in the Senate but... Tim Scott, Senator Scott, understands this. And so I wanted to be a fly on the wall for any conversations that Senator Booker and Senator Scott had had. That's what I was wondering. I was was curious to know. And I thought that was a really interesting point as well. So just a really remarkable moment. I'm so proud of Justice, I'll say Associate Justice Jackson. I'm going to, I'm going to, 
say it out loud. And I'm really proud of Senators Booker and Padilla for being there for her. I want to ask you one academic question, which is, you know, you think so much about critical race theory, and I love your video trying to explain it in non-Ted Cruz gambling racist baby terms. That was the choice to even do it in this kind of infantile way with infantile graphics was a real choice on his part. I guess I wanted to ask you, it's abundantly clear, it doesn't even merit discussing why Judge Jackson, let's call her Justice Jackson, couldn't answer questions about critical race theory in the law. And she wasn't being disingenuous. She, you know, they they cherry-picked a line from a speech where it was one of a list But I would love to hear if you could talk about, in a non-cartoonish, non-Ted Cruz, non-under-the-hot-lights-of-scrutiny, where it's just a distraction, what an answer could be, what an answer could look like to say critical race theory actually isn't the cartoon that Ted Cruz put forth, and here's a way to think about it if you're still not quite sure what it is and why it matters. Could you give us, I guess I'm asking for a version of of the video I've watched where you explain it, but what the intelligent person's answer to those completely fatuous gotcha questions might be? Wow. So I think think basically she couldn't answer that question (laughs) in so many ways. But I think that a couple of things that critical race theory highlights is that people are seen differently and they experience life differently based on their identity characteristics, based on race, based on gender, based on the intersection of so many categories. And as a result, people bring a really unique voice. You know, she could talk about an example where the experience of African-Americans could make a difference. One way she could have said it is to simply say, do you think that I, you and I experience the world differently? If we were to walk into this particular space, how would we experience that? And how might that actual experience then change how we see a fact in this particular case or that particular case or how we understand it and apply legal doctrine to those particular factual scenarios. I mean, I think that's really what's at the heart of CRT is a recognition that both structurally and individually, people of color tend to have different experiences than many white people. And those things shape how someone views a fact, shapes how somebody understands legal doctrine. It shapes so many things. And that's why it's important to have a diversity of people on the bench. And my God, I mean, this is where we started, but that hearing itself was a natural experiment in how different it is to walk into a space, a predominantly white space, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, as a person of color. Because as you said, Brett Kavanaugh's hearing did not go the way Ketanji Brown-Jackson's hearing went. I mean, there's just such a meta lesson here about critical race theory swathing the entire process in which she was being interrogated about it in a way that had absolutely nothing to do with her jurisprudence. I wonder if we can end on a happy note. First of all, I just want to say, I think, I hope people who listened caught Judge Jackson's laugh 
Because I, I, I'm going to venture that she may have one of the greatest laughs on the federal bench today. And there were some really wonderful moments where, you know, in addition to politely thanking every single person who asked her a question, no matter how vicious it was, um, when she just let herself laugh with joy. Um, I don't know. I, for me, it was very similar to what you're describing with that Courtney Booker speech, where I felt like I, oh, there she is. Um, but I wonder if we can end... Because I think what you said and what I've heard, and there were young Black women standing outside the chamber saying, my future just expanded. I can see myself in a totally different future than I did yesterday morning. And I remember covering Sonia Sotomayor's hearing and seeing the same thing, Latina women standing in line for hours, young women, so that they could be in that chamber for a couple of minutes and see their future. It's such a far cry from just persevere. And I wonder if you can help us think through where, in some sense, you know, we've not come far enough, <laughs> but in some sense, we came really, really far because this wasn't, in the end, I don't think, Angela, just persevere. It was a soaring. And I wonder if you could speak to that. It absolutely was a soaring. It was a soaring in so many ways. You could see it in the look in her daughter's eyes. You've seen that picture with her daughter just beaming at her. Just a proud moment. The daughter who wrote that letter when she was 11 years, in 2011, to say to the president, please make my mom a Supreme Court justice. It was a wonderful moment to see her and her family, to see her husband, right, whom, because of Loving versus Virginia, she was able to be married to and have those beautiful two uh, young women standing there. It was an uh, absolutely soaring moment. I mean, I think there was just nothing but pride at how she showed, she countered every single thing they were saying about her. All the knocks that she wasn't qualified, that she shouldn't be on the bench, that President Biden looked at too narrow of a list, right, in, in considering her. I mean, her performance was just stellar, just pride, right? Pure Black excellence right there. Black female excellence right there. And I think it was a soaring. She showed precisely why she belonged on that bench. As uh, Senator Booker said, America will be, quoting Langston Hughes, America will be. And I think it is a moment where we get to see America in one of its finest moments when she's confirmed as an associate justice. It will be us making one step closer to the ideal and the ideals that we um, proclaim when we talk about our great nation. Angela Onwachi-Willig is Dean and Ryan Roth Gallo and Ernest J. Gallo Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. She's a renowned legal scholar and expert in critical race theory, employment discrimination, and family law. Angela, I think last time we had you on the show was to talk about that summer of uh, 2020 and what it marked and what it might lead us to. It is just incredibly moving and fitting to have you on this show to talk about, in some sense, I think what is a really profound beginning of something wonderful. Thank you so much, Dahlia. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nate Priscilli is the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. He's got appointments in the departments of political science, communication, and FSI. His work focuses on American election law, the law of democracy, and addresses everything from voting rights to political parties to campaign financing, redistricting, election administration. He's served as a special master or court-appointed expert to craft congressional or legislative districting plans for a whole bunch of states. And uh, work for which he has been honored as a Guggenheim Fellow, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and a Fellow for the Center of Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, all examines the impact of changing technology on political communication campaigns and election administration. Nate, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I feel like you are at the center of every Venn diagram that's been playing out in my head all week long. I mean, just generally, you are at that center. But I think that this is a week where we're talking about fair elections. We're talking about misinformation. We're also talking about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who I know is a dear friend of yours. I feel like you're also like right there in the Venn diagram of like what to do with this pickled brisket that is thawing on my counter right now. There's nothing I don't want to ask you today, Nate. So I'm really happy to have you back. And I know there's just a lot going on, but I'm hoping you can help me pick my way through it. Well, let's start with the pickled brisket. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that, that'll be the best of all this. And I guess we should disclose <laughs> we should disclose that we've known each other a long time as well. But maybe we can just start with Katanji Brown Jackson, who you've known for a long, long, long time. You're one of those people. Um, who's really watched her whole career up close. And I wonder if you can tell us, just under the pure gossip and joy part of the show, what parts of your old friend did you see on display at this hearing this past week? I've known Katanji since we were 13 years old. So we grew up together in Miami, uh, went to Palmetto Junior High School and Palmetto Senior High School. And I was part of that now strangely famous debate team that she was a part of. And I'm thrilled that she sort of celebrated uh, and, and praised our former debate coach, who was really instrumental in many of our lives. I'll say that, you know, she is the same person now that she was then, which is to say that she was an incredibly mature old soul then as well. But I look back on our, our time as kids and then, you know, knowing her later in life, and that same poise and unflappability that has served her so well, and which I certainly would not have had in front of those senators this week, was evident back then. And this kind of willingness to go with the punches, as one of her friends said in the hearing itself, she never had an unkind word to say about anybody. And she also would never puff herself up, despite all of these accomplishments that she had, even back then as a championship debater, but then also going to Harvard, clerking on the Supreme Court and the like. She was always so self-deprecating. In addition to being whip smart and all those great qualities that you see for excellent justices, you know, she has this incredible wisdom garnered from life experience uh, as well as books. And I, I really look forward to seeing her on the court. So let's talk, if we may, about misinformation. Listen, I don't work in your lane and I don't understand these information ecosystems the way you do. But what I saw 
play out within the span of less than a week, Nate, was like a really dumb trial balloon floated by Josh Hawley in some tweets on Thursday. It was tested. It was tested by Monday. You know, we saw Senator Lindsey Graham saying, I'm not going to associate myself with this, but I'm going to certainly egg on Josh Hawley. By the end of Wednesday, it was the party line. And as it was being debunked in real time, by the way, in every mainstream media source, including the National Review Online, it was expanding and growing and growing and expanding. And the more we talked about it, the more it grew. And it just really became clear to me, Nate, and please tell me I'm wrong, that it doesn't matter because... Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are narrow casting to their people, to One America Network and to their Twitter mentions, and that you and I are operating in an ecosystem that is utterly immaterial to what they were trying to do. And in that sense, I guess they did what they were trying to do. Well, look, I think it matters. I mean, it matters in no small measure because it made me so angry to hear it, you know, and not, not that I should be the focus of this, but, you know, and, and anyone else who was watching these hearings, it took up an enormous amount of time. That's why I think the speech by Cory Booker to at least refocus us on the joy of this hearing was so important, as well as Alex Padilla's comments that really led Judge Jackson eventually to, to show that side of her, to, to show the struggle and also how much these hearings had, had wore on her. On the larger topic of, of disinformation, let's be clear. If it weren't these questions, it would have been something else. All right. So that it's, it's not about anything that she did in these cases or some particular decision. Think about the other trial balloons that flip. This could have been all about critical race theory, right? I mean, a lot of it was, right? It could have been about the abortion decisions or her briefs. Like, that could have been the domineering point. But the thing about child pornography, it is that it is not just the third rail, say, in these hearings. It is, as, as you, I think, were suggesting, when you talk about the Internet ecosystem, it has a privileged role, <laughs> right? And so that this is, this is the worst thing, the worst topic you can bring up. And so if you can cleave some personality, some nominee to that topic, you have succeeded, right? We know this, of course, from the famous Pizzagate controversy with Hillary Clinton, which led to real violence as a result of misinformation. You see it in the kind of QAnon echo chambers as well. And so this is, you know, th this is part of a strategy to um, try to adjoin her to that most incendiary topic. I was really struck on Wednesday when they bring in an expert who's supposed to be the child sex offender expert who's supposed to shore up all of these completely debunked conspiracy theories. The child expert herself, right, declines to talk about Judge Jackson, admits she's never read her opinions or her law review, you know, article. In my mind, when I think about this as a disinformation or misinformation problem, I'm like, well, boom, you know, even your expert didn't corroborate what you were saying. And in fact, said some stuff that really supported what Judge Jackson had been saying about how the internet has changed the ways we think about porn. But I'm clearly naive, right? Like, it doesn't matter that the expert that they bring in from Operation Underground Railway did nothing to help them. The mere fact that there was an expert there is enough? 
Well, remember that it, it, very few people are watching all of the hearings. The hearings are opportunities for sound bites and events, right? And so the question is, will there be something that happens in the hearing that then will reverberate or be, you know, in the information ecosystem or on cable news? And so having, a, you know, expert advice here or, or testimony is only relevant insofar as it either shores up the narrative in a significant way so that then it can be, you know, amplified by the other thought leaders, right? And that's true, you know, even outside of this context, like what what purpose did these people serve? And then how easy is it really to debunk any of this stuff when it's not really drawing on evidence, right? It's appealing to emotion and psychological anxiety, right? So so you could have all the expert testimony that you want, and it's not going to replace the, the yelling that was coming from the podium. I, I, I think that it's just about trying to give more air to that issue as opposed to others. And that, I think, leads me to just one other question that I was very aware of, and I, again, I'm sure that this is a, a systemic thing that you think about and that I'm just really seeing play out on these narrow terms, but I was very struck by this locution of do your own research. People are asking. Josh Hawley starts by saying, you know, people just really are asking about these two soft sentences, and there's a way in which it encourages folks to do their own research, right? It's saying, if you won't release these confidential pre-sentencing reports, you know, you're part of the conspiracy to hide child porn protection. And it makes everybody who isn't a party to this do-your-own-research game part of the conspiracy. And it struck me, you know, Nate, this is how anti-vaxxers spread misinformation. It's how stop the steal happens, right? It's just like if you don't see election fraud in that one case in Pennsylvania or Arizona, you're covering it up. And so I guess I want you to tell me how unique this is to the Internet age and how unique it is to this QAnon zeitgeist of everyone's lying to you, everyone's in on it. If we can find a scintilla of something— it doesn't matter what's there. What matters is we have now persuaded people that it, they are the experts and that their research is dispositive. So is this how conspiracies always spread or is this some part of this larger mistrust of institutions and, and truth? All right. So there's a lot there. And, and I want to start with the last phrase because that's sort of the fertile ground into which these seeds are planted, right, which is that we're living in an age of pervasive distrust. There's a chicken and egg problem here, of course, is that, you know, whether the internet is causing it. But my, my view is that the, the loss of trust in institutions generally, government in particular, but institutions generally, so put the medical establishment, universities, uh, corporations, banks in there as well. There's been a long-term erosion in that trust. Why that is, is complicated. It's not unique to the United States. We're seeing this around the world. Our political institutions are very ill-fitted for that, for other reasons that I, that I can talk about, you know, because other parts of the world, they trust nonpartisan civil servants to deal with certain things. Here we have uh, pervasive distrust. So start with that as the baseline. And then the question is, what strategies then undercut even further legitimate sources of authority and credibility? Right now, part of the problem is there's no 
institution or single person who has credibility across the political spectrum. So we are very far away from the days when Walter Cronkite could end every broadcast with, that's just the way it is, because right now no one trusts anyone to say what it is at this point. So there's this loss of authority. To some extent, that is an internet story. It's also a cable news story, of course. We tend to differentiate. It's like, is it the internet's fault? Is it cable news's fault? There's a feedback loop here, right? Where the internet sometimes sets the agenda for cable news. Cable news then sometimes sets the agenda for the internet, which is to say social media and more sort of grassrootsy commentary. Kate Starbird at the University of Washington has talked about participatory disinformation, and that's that's really what we're seeing uh, here as well. And so you need only look at the slogan for RT, right, Russia Today, which is question more. And and, and whether it's in the anti-vax context, whether it's with respect to the QAnon conspiracy theory, election fraud, or any number of other areas where you're trying to get some source of authority, some elite opinion on this to then make its way into the mass public, the answer is, look, do your own research because these people have a, a hidden agenda, right? And it is extremely difficult to counteract that. Unfortunately, we now live in an age where we're turning to the internet platforms to be the main arbiters of that, that, that they're putting the responsibility on them to counteract these pervasive narratives that are being you know, propagated from the elites in Washington, elites in the media, elites in all kinds of uh, other circles. We'll be right back. So you know where this is going, which is, what do we do? And that's why you're here, and that's why I don't envy you, because my sense of this is that, and here I always end up quoting, you've probably heard me say it even on the show before, my younger son, when the Nazis were marching in Charlottesville, who sort of at the age of 12, posited, you ignore them, you lose, you engage with them, you lose. It's so clear to me that this hearing was a matter of you pick your way through one of two really terrible outcomes. You either engage, debunk, and this really, in some ways, give credibility to a bunch of garbage, or you ignore it and let it, as you said, flourish in fertile ground. Now, you're going to explain to me why that is way too simplistic and there is a way to prevail over this hellish double bind. Go. What you say is true. That doesn't mean all hope is lost. There are w- strategies and ways of covering conflicts like this or or. I didn't even call them conflicts because that's giving it too much credit, right? Those kind of strategies that try to, to take the wind out of those sails, right? So Claire Wardle of First Draft Media has advice to journalists, which is to create what she calls a truth sandwich, right? Which is that you start by saying, this is going to be a lie. Here's what the lie is. And here's why it's wrong, right? As opposed to saying, well, this you know, event happened, the, the people on this side said this, people on that side said that, isn't it terrible how much conflict there is? And look, let's talk more about the conflict, which is like saying, ignore that elephant in the room. You know, there are lots of different strategies like this. There's strategies for the media. There are strategies for those of us, you know, who are talking about this, which is to shift attention toward the more positive aspects. I thought that that's in part what Cory Booker was doing when he says, we're not going to let them steal our joy. Uh, he means even to focus on those accusations is going to distract from the historic appointment here 
And so you sort of dilute the bad with the good, right? And so you try to flood the zone with better information or more positive uh, assessments in this case of a nominee. And I know it's impossible to diagnose and maybe the diagnosis is rooted in dumb stuff like polling that I think is going to start to show in the next couple of days that Judge Jackson is still very popular and that by and large, these hearings played out well for her in no small part because of some of the truth sandwiching that was happening. But doesn't change the fact that there's a long tail to this stuff and that for years to come, she's going to be associated with a pernicious smear. And I guess you just live with the long tail knowing that, I guess what, that we hope that it's limited to 25%, 30% of the population? Well, yes. I mean, mean, to some extent, every political figure is engendering a polarized reaction. So we shouldn't be surprised that Supreme Court nominees do. And so just live with that. And like I said, if it weren't this, it would be something else. I think it's possible that because of how sort of esoteric these charges are, that it will not have the staying power, uh, you know, to say, oh, that is what she's known as. It will, it will take a few decisions, right? Uh, in some ways, I'm sort of lamenting that she said she's going to recuse herself from the, the Harvard case uh, in the fall. And she said that's her plan because her voice would be so important on that. And that's the kind And the more activity that she's engaged in, more opinions that come out from her, the more that this will recede in the background. Right. And, and that's true for some other justices who've been nominated before as well. Look, if it were a personal issue, as with Clarence Thomas or with Brett Kavanaugh, that it's hard that that doesn't go away. But when it's about the law, when it's about her decisions, well, a number of other decisions will then, I think, dilute the importance of that. Um, I, I guess my follow-on question is, what are the implications of how misinformation played out this week at these hearings going forward for how we think about wins and losses and what we've learned? Well, one thing that concerns me is that while we have celebrated the fact that Katanji Brown-Jackson is a district court judge, (laughs) um, this shows you why they don't get appointed all that often, right? If you have 500 opinions, you're going to have some in criminal cases with pretty unattractive defendants, right? And if you take sentencing seriously as she does and as most judges do, then anyone is going to be able to take a a particular case and then blow it out of proportion. And so I think we've seen that here. And I, I, I worry about two things. I worry about our inability to appoint qualified district court judges like this to, to hire judicial office. And then second, I worry about what the signal it's now sending to judges around the country. I mean, we were we were lurching towards some consensus on criminal justice issues over the last few years, right? Bipartisan consensus uh, on sort of rationality and sentencing and the way that we should be thinking about criminal justice issues, both with respect to racial disparate impact as well as other things. I worry that these hearings are blowing that apart, right? And that we're sort of turning back the clock to the 1980s uh, where there were sort of predictable risks that any judge, any politician would uh, face if they started saying, look, we need to understand criminal justice policy and sentencing in a different way. And maybe just connected to that, I really am interested in what checks bad impulses. And I guess I really thought that when the National Review Online debunked the most scurrilous charges, 
even on Fox News, we had some debunking. I thought, I thought the Republican Party answered to that. It turned out they just blew past that. I mean, it was immaterial, and it raises questions for me about what still has a checking function. Like, if there's nobody to pump the brakes, or the brakes being pumped is immaterial, then it raises the question of what happens next time. And I, I, I guess I really mistakenly believed that that still was an ominous, you know, threat, losing credibility with those publications. I think those publications are, are wallpaper now, yeah? I agree. I mean, I don't think that any publication is going to chill the ambitions of politicians that want to play to a particular constituency that is sort of frothing at the mouth on these issues. And look, in some ways, that's the lesson in the last five years, right, which is that there is no elite institution, and I'll throw National Review in there as an elite institution, that will be able to sort of stop the tide that going over the banks here once it's been unleashed. And, and what elites are learning is that they can unleash the tide with, you know, relative ease if they have a kind of concentrated moment where the cameras are are on and they can create these kind of events that then can reverberate around the uh, information ecosystem. I guess this is a good segue to the revelations that came out late Thursday about the text messages between Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, and Mark Meadows. And again, the reason this feels like it's in your wheelhouse, Nate, is that I think the shocker in reading some of those texts that CBS and The Washington Post have reported on is that stuff is not high-minded Federalist society, (laughs) you know. This is just straight-up watermark ballots, Sidney Powell, Kraken. I mean, this feels like it's really very dangerous crack pottery, for lack of a better word, and it's coming from inside the house. And I guess I wondered, A, if you were surprised that the level of, again, this is not John Eastman talking points. This is stuff that we thought was fringe. And the extent to which I guess it's interesting. It's infiltrated the discourse at the highest levels. I'm not going to impute these ideas to Clarence Thomas because I have no evidence of that. But I think there's something different between people very, very high in government transactionally using crack pottery to get outcomes and embracing crack pottery themselves. And I guess that's my question for you is how much of this – as somebody who studies uh, disinformation and who studies the ways in which toxic ideas go mainstream, is it in any way material to you that Ginny Thomas is embracing the idea that the Biden family's going on trial for war crimes in Guantanamo? Well, I do think this is a perfect example of the feedback loop with disinformation, right? And we're talking about participatory disinformation. It's not as if It's just random people in QAnon echo chambers who are then talking to themselves with no consequence, either for public policy or for elite discourse. It goes into elite discourse because elites are paying attention to this. And all the more so when you have a president that has an active Twitter feed, right? And so then it goes up, it goes out, and then it goes back on, and then it goes on to the cable news networks and the like. As you know, we started this project, the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections Project, to deal with 
all kinds of issues related to the election. And then we, we had hoped we'd be done by the election, but then we kept going on to deal with the litigation and everything. And what's important to understand is that no matter how often you would debunk a particular claim, whether it's about Italian satellites having an impact on the election, Dominion voting systems, dead people voting, non-citizens, Sharpies in Arizona, whatever the it, it's it's like this was a multi-headed beast, right? That the, the claims of fraud were so heterogeneous that there was really no way to defeat the argument because it was many different uh, types of arguments. And so, you know, for the academics like me, you just get exhausted because it's not amenable to like scientific inquiry. It's like, all right, you say this, this is your hypothesis here. I'm going to disprove that. And then it's like, oh, no, actually, it was the dead hand of Hugo Chavez that affected the election. It's like, OK, well, you know, and the point is, I'm, it's not just the fringe groups that believe this. It is now orthodoxy. Right. And so that then it has an effect on on people in positions of power and decision making. And what are the big brains telling us about, if anything, how this gets forestalled? I mean, I know I remember talking to you a few years ago when we thought this was just a Facebook problem, and that's hilarious. But tell me what the sort of at the highest levels of thinking about this as academics, where you are right now. I think the platforms have uh, larger and larger obligations here to amplify good content, reliable, trustworthy information, and to take action against the fringe content. It's increasingly difficult because they know that they're going to end up getting accused of partisan bias. And I, I personally think that the COVID pandemic was an inflection point because some of the admonitions that we're not arbiters of truth were put to the wayside in order to deal with that national emergency. The same is happening with respect to the war in Ukraine, where they're they're having to take certain action and really think about, you know, what does disinformation and propaganda mean in wartime? But, you know, frankly, the key decision point in the next year is whether Donald Trump is going to be allowed back on the platforms. Everything else is sort of ancillary to that because a world in which he has a Twitter feed, a YouTube channel, and a Facebook account is a different one than when he doesn't. And I do not envy the position of those people who are going to make this decision because uh, especially if he announces for president, you know, the idea that you would have one candidate but not another have access to the platforms is something that they just they don't want to be in that business. It does highlight the problem we we're talking about before that, you know, elites are playing an active role in the spreading of disinformation. And one thing I'll say, and you asked me as sort of an academic who studies this, most of these problems are a big problem for a small share of users, whether we're talking about hate speech, incitement, or, or disinformation. We should not assume that the majority of people, their experience online is dominated by this crap. But for a sizable share of the population, which is still a minority, they do get a lot of this content. And so that requires other kinds of interventions specifically with those communities. So I guess this brings me to my elections question, and I'm going to ask you about Wisconsin in a minute, but it does seem as though there were even moments in Judge Jackson's hearings where it felt like she was conceding that there's such a thing as election fraud. I mean, you almost have to in order to have what seems like a fair conversation, but I guess I'm so worried, Nate, that 
in terms of elections and democracy, I mean, put aside hate speech, put aside threats, but you're always five steps behind platforms and rumors and misinformation. And it really does seem as though once you have a court that's put a thumb on the scale of election fraud is a thing, you've almost lost the next election and certainly the election after that before it has been battled out. Am I wrong? So first, let's talk about dealing with disinformation and then the issue with election fraud. You are right that in some ways, disinformation is only addressable once it's achieved a certain level of danger, right? And that's part of the problem. We, we did a study with my colleagues at NYU where we gave every day fresh news stories that we saw to 90 individual sort of random people and six professional fact checkers to see how good average people would be to uh, do fact checking. It turns out they're really bad at it. They're really bad at it when it matters most, which is in the first 24, 48 hours when the story is going to be gaining traction. And it's not clear how best to address that problem because the platforms are then in this difficult situation. What should they do uh, on the question as to, you know, whether Russia used hypersonic weapons in a particular area? All right. So that goes on a platform. How do they know whether it's true or not? And once they know whether it's true or not, and it turns out it was true, of course, that then uh, is too late if it were false information. Now on, on election fraud, I am extremely worried about the declining levels of confidence in the American election infrastructure. Right now, it's mainly on the Republican side because of the big lie and the result of the 2020 election. I think after the midterms, when I suspect the Democrats will lose, that you're going to see a massive loss of confidence that will be bipartisan. And that is a very dangerous situation to be in. And it is one where it's extremely difficult we know from comparative context to win back trust once it's been lost like that. <sighs> That's me sighing audibly into people's ears. Talk for a moment about Wisconsin. I'm always afraid to call these shadow docket orders because it feels like it it it, it is casting a judgment, but we certainly had an unsigned decision in a, a major case out of Wisconsin. Can you just walk us through what the court decided with the caveat that we're not quite sure what the vote was? Sure. Well, we know that there were two dissenters, at least. Mm -hmm. So we know that, that, that there were at least five in favor and, and at least two dissenting. All right. So let's just talk about what the issue is. Mm -hmm. So the issue here is that the Wisconsin Supreme Court adopted the proposal from the governor, which created an additional majority black district. They did this because they thought that the Voting Rights Act would require it based on stuff in the record, and that's kind of the important issue here, how much stuff was there. But the Voting Rights Act sometimes requires the creation of these majority-minority districts if there's racial polarization and minorities have less opportunity to elect their candidate of choice. So they adopted this plan, uh, and then the Supreme Court, in what was a surprising decision, said, you know what, you have not justified the creation of that additional majority black district. We are reversing this so that you can either justify it or adopt a plan that doesn't take race so much into account. Now, all right, that, that's a very technical, but I hope clear explanation of the case. But why should we care? Uh, and the answer is that the the remaining provisions of the Voting Rights Act are under assault, right? And so that while people are familiar with the Section 5 case, Shelby County, which took that part out of the Voting Rights Act, we are now seeing 
both in a case out of Arizona last year, the Brnovich case, the case from Alabama this year, where I was appointed to draw the remedial plan. It was my shortest appointment ever, probably about 90 minutes before the Supreme Court intervened in that case. Um, But in that case also, which related to the Voting Rights Act, they were saying that you didn't have to draw one more majority minority district. And now the Wisconsin case, um, it shows that there is a, a kind of push on this court to question the basics of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is really the last remaining strong provision of the VRA. And is there doctrine that emerges from this? Do we know what, I mean, it was not even clear to me post-Burnovich what the rules are. Do we, are we getting a, a clear sense of what the majority of the court thinks the new doctrine is? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, look, I could spin it out for you in my kind of law professor role. If you combine what happened in Alabama with what happened in, in Wisconsin, what does that tell you? As a general rule, I think we should just say that they are skeptical about the creation of majority minority districts and that if there's a situation in which you think you need to do so, you've got to have a lot of evidence that there would be a voting rights violation. Right. But even that is might might not be enough. For some time, we've known that the Supreme Court's kind of colorblindness jurisprudence is on a collision course with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's what we're seeing here and a willingness to, to get involved in these redistricting cases. I mean, I should you know say the obvious also, which is that um, in, in some cases, like the Alabama case, they said that there wasn't enough time for the court to, to deal with this issue and to draft a remedial plan. And yet here, they're actually overturning the court's decision. And, you know, in a what's going to be a four-month period, they're going to have to uh, come up with a new map uh, and administer it for the elections. And so, you know, the, 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 some might say that's not terribly consistent. I think one of the big questions in the voting rights realm, as well as some of these others, is how aggressive the court will be and how soon they will be, right? And that's true in the abortion realm as well. What kind of decisions are we going to get this term? Are, is it going to be overturned Roe versus Wade or is it going to be, well, chipped away in a kind of Casey, you know, chipped away at Casey and others? Um, in the voting rights realm, right, The if you remember the way Shelby County ended up sort of emerging, it was not the first case, right? There were other cases, this case Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District. Same thing with Citizens United, where there were earlier cases, a case called Wisconsin Right to Life. When it comes to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, I don't expect them to strike it down like they did in in Shelby County. It will be a narrowing of the contours of Section 2 in the redistricting realm before, if they were to strike it down, that it will be taken out. Mind you, there is another kind of, was thought to be unfounded argument making its way through the courts, which is whether individuals even have a private right of action under Section 2 of the VRA, which was never in dispute until recently when Justice Gorsuch and Thomas have raised it in dissents or in separate opinions. And so I would be surprised if that gets a majority of the court because it basically says they should never have been hearing these types of cases all along. But uh, that's another thing to keep our eye out for. Nate Priscilli is James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School with appointments in the Departments of Political Science Communication and FSI. His work, just happily for us, focuses on election law, law of democracy, voting rights, parties, misinformation, campaign finance, redistricting, election administration. So I think pickled brisket notwithstanding, 
we've covered all those topics. Thank you, Nate, for being with us. And thank you. I know you are working hard and like spinning many, many plates. So thank you. Well, thanks so much. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much, as always, for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your thoughts. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, hang on in there. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.